Danielle, thanks so much for joining Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Leon Evans, who is a the former president for the, of the Center for Healthcare Services. He is he received the American Psychiatric Association Gold Award. He's a past CNN mental health warrior, and he has testified before Congress, among many other things. He's incredibly accomplished, and this conversation is going to be really amazing because Leon has done so many great things around mental health, from working with the homeless to working with the incarcerated and trying to keep people from becoming incarcerated working with mothers who have been addicted to drugs and helping them keep their babies. He's really just incredibly mission-driven and focused on helping people starting with um, hope, dignity, and respect. So with that, Leon, why don't you tell us why is this so important to you? How did you get involved with this? I've had a a great life and great opportunities. So I was just a poor kid from Oklahoma that uh, was able to go to college on an athletic wrestling scholarship. And I was a business and finance major. And there's a state hospital in Norman. And uh, they opened up an adolescent unit. And they came to the Young Christian Athletes Association and asked for volunteers. And I was one of the two volunteers and fell in love with that work and those children and changed my major the next uh, next semester. So that was... uh, 1966. So I've, I've been doing this a long time. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, just like everybody in our field, uh, I started off, you know, uh, on the lowest rungs uh, doing uh, drug service with people and kept having these opportunities to grow and learn. So uh, my, uh, my education has really been from the ground up and not the top down. And, and uh, that's, I think, what's helped shape my philosophy about uh, treatment and what uh, and how treatment uh, is designed to really work. Can you tell us about that, Leon? It sounds like such an amazing journey uh, over spanning more than five decades. What does it mean uh, to be focused on the treatment from the ground up? Why is that, why is that different and why is it so powerful in your eyes? Well, because it's so patient focused and, you know, your audience uh, probably knows this, uh, they're, they're not really not uh, as interested in, uh, uh, in the research uh, in treatment and how, how they're treated. They're more interested in uh, getting well and having uh, their treatment providers understand them and, uh, you know, uh, you know, help them get to a place where, uh, they, you know, they can have a meaningful life. And so many times in, in my field, which is the public field, is underfunded, uh, we're overworked, uh, we, we get uh, lots of regulations put on us that uh, really uh, aren't helpful and don't work. And, and it's not from the, from the patient's viewpoint as much as it is from academic research. And uh, I found that academic research many times is beneficial in best practices and helps shaping what you do on the ground, but not necessarily uh, uh, workable because usually the research that's done at the, at the federal level, uh, you know, you have small patient groups, uh, you, you, you have the right funding, you have the right support system, 
And if you just say, hey, that works, and you try to push it down without the additional funding and the additional resources, it's a dis dismal failure. And so uh, it just dawned on me kind of mid-career that I really need to talk to the people that we serve. And what I found out, in, in, uh, uh, in, uh, especially from one person uh, back then, uh, uh, a lady named Janet came to my office and she said, Leon, you know, you give me everything except I, what I need. And I said, uh, what's that, Janet? And she said, hope. And uh, it just struck me what she, and, and she actually uh, elaborated on that. And uh, I uh, said, hope. And she said, yeah, you, you know, you have great doctors. Uh, I have great medicine, but I don't have a life. And uh, uh, I was telling Stephanie uh, earlier uh, about this uh, program. I started the Mental Health Center north of Houston, Montgomery, Liberty, and Walker County called Tri-County. And we started an affirmative business, a business where we could uh, uh, hire people uh, uh, who were uh, mentally ill and, and addicted who were in recovery. And uh, so uh, one of the contracts we had was with the Texas Department of Highways. Uh, we, uh, and uh, we bid on it and we got it and we saved the state a lot of money and the, and the money that we earned was significant uh, to the point where I could pay more than minimum wage and give some benefits to uh, these people in recovery. And uh, in Texas at the time, we relied pretty heavily on oil for, for revenue for the state. And we had a downturn in the oil patch. And so I get a call from the highway department saying, y'all are fired. And I said, well, and I said, why? And he told me, I said, well, okay, but you can't fire me because I have a 90 day clause, you can give me notice. He said, no, I'm in the highway department, you're only mental health, so you guys are gone. Well, I took exception to that. I called my state senator, state representatives, but I also called an investigative reporter in Houston. And he said, listen, I don't wanna to talk to you or the highway guy, but there's a human interest story here. Can you round up some people you had to lay off from Tri-County Industries? And I said, I think so. So the head of Tri-County Industries, Reggie, found some people, and that was back in the 80s. And the, they, they drove from Houston in the truck with a satellite dish on it. And they were interviewing these, uh, these people that we had to lay off. And the first person uh, uh, that was being uh, interviewed uh, was so articulate. And uh, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't think he had a mental illness. I mean, he was so together. And, uh, and uh, so uh, uh, Mr. Haddock asked him, he said, well, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? And he said, yes, I've been in and out of Rust State Hospital many times over the years. I go to the hospital. I, he said, I have a bipolar disorder. I go to the hospital, I, I get good medication, I get stabilized when I come home. And uh, I set my house and, and I, you know, I watch TV and pretty soon I forget to take my medication. And next thing I know, I'm back in the state hospital. He said, he said, uh, uh, Tri-County came and got me off a back ward at Rust State Hospital, brought me home and gave me a job picking up trash. And he said, uh, you know, I'm a crew supervisor now and I've gotten married. And Haddock said, are you sure you have a mental illness? And he said, yeah. He said, when I start to get those feelings like I used to, when I knew I was getting sick. And he said this on TV, he said, I get my butt in to see the doctor because I don't want to miss a day of work. And, I, and, you know, how powerful is that? 
So this person is fighting for his good mental health because he has a life. He has a responsibility. He has a wife. And, uh, you know, we in medicine uh, so many times forget that part of people, and especially people, especially people who are very, very ill. They have comorbid conditions and, and are fighting uh, all these other things. Uh, you know, they don't have hope. And so Jenna was right. And I, I think that was a big success of all the different programs and silos that we tend to have success in. And that... It, you know, similar theme with the mommies program that you created. You said that it's it was primarily for women who were addicted to drugs, who were prostitutes, yes. and who grew up in the you know child protective services world, and then aged out and then become really a victim of you know whoever they're working for and lose their babies. And so you created this mommies program that how, treated them with dignity and respect, like any other mom who's not addicted to drugs might get, you know, you have great prenatal care and you have, you know, you're treated respectfully and kindly, and it really made a difference in these women's lives. So why don't you tell us about that program and, you know, what success you've seen from that? Yeah. So we developed this restoration center that had a sobering unit, a, a detox unit, a mental health crisis unit. And we also had other services, uh, including a methadone clinic there. And we started training law enforcement officers and other first responders to bring them to us rather than taking people to jail or to the emergency rooms or putting people back on the street homeless. But these uh, women addicted to heroin, uh, what used to happen before they come to us, and of course, you know, uh, once you get pregnant, you can't be on heroin. And we had the only program that would treat women who were pregnant on, on methadone. And uh, so uh, when we started working with these women, what we found out is so many of, the, of these women had been in child protective services. So uh, they had been abused, a lot of them sexually as, as young women or girls, uh, physically and, and mentally. Uh, trying, and, they, and so uh, in the, in the child, uh, child welfare system here, you know, uh, you end up going to a foster family. Uh, you have all these bad things. You don't get trauma-informed care. And we age you out of foster care uh, in Texas at 18. And so, uh, you know, like I was telling you, Stephanie, I have two sons. One's a doctor and one's a business guy. Uh, uh, they're, they're great dads, great husbands. And uh, if my wife and I had kicked them out of our family when they were 18, I don't think they would have ended up quite as well as they did. But we take these broken young people and young women and we kick them out of the system. They get no trauma-informed care. They're broken. They don't know how to work. Uh, they have post-traumatic stress and all these you know, poor self-esteem, as you can, might imagine. And, and so some predator uh, you know, finds them. The next thing you know, uh, they're prostituting their own drugs, uh, and then uh, they get a lot of them get pregnant. <clears throat> so when they get pregnant, they end up in our methadone program. And so, uh, as you know, uh, doctor, uh, these uh, uh, women end up delivering early. Uh, they go to the NICU. They're million-dollar babies. Then child protective services takes their baby away because they're prostitutes and heroin addicts, right? And it didn't take us long to figure out that these aren't prostitutes and heroin addicts. They're broken young women who have never had a chance, who were never treated with 
with love or kindness. And so this lady named Carla Ramirez, uh, who worked at the Restoration Center, ran it, developed this program with the University Health System, the hospital district. So we started treating these ladies with dignity and respect, got them treatment, but also got them great prenatal care at the university and, and treated the, these young women like young women. And uh, a miracle happened. In fact, I carry a, a, a picture on my phone. Uh, we have all these babies on a, on a board uh, who didn't, uh, whose mothers, uh, they weren't taken away from their mothers and their mothers took a, a different path. The babies are born much heavier, so they're not million dollar babies at the NICU and, and driving up the cost of healthcare for everybody. And again, this is from the bottom up and not the top down. It's not, not the methadone. You know, it's, it's, it's the respect, it's the treatment, it's, it's developing a different reality. It's, it's letting people know that, they're, uh, that they have worth and they're cared for. And, and I would say uh, our staff even loved these ladies. Uh, I, I know I did. So, you know, combining medicine with, with hope and joy and recovery uh, is essential. And I told you another story about up here, uh, 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 NPR did a, a story and Jenny Gold was the reporter and her dad was a psychiatrist in, in uh, San Francisco. And so she was fairly knowledgeable. And we had this uh, program uh, that went under bridges in Camden trying to find pe uh, people with severe mental illness and get them to, to come in to treatment. And they'd almost always say yes. And, uh, uh, and of course, the no-show rate was very high. They didn't, they didn't come into treatment, even, even if we offered transportation. Or, or Then we put this peer, Sam, on, on the team with this, with, and the program was called PATH. And uh, anyway, all of a sudden, the no-show rate went way down. So Jenny asked Sam, Sam, well, how come, you know, this program really improved when you got on? as part of the treatment team. And Sam looked at Jenny and said, Jenny, I've been on that same shipwreck. So that lived experience, who would have ever known if we'd had the best psychologists, the best psychiatrists, everybody else, we still had that high no show, right? Because our staff were very well trained. They put themselves at risk a little bit going to these cabinets. But once you put somebody that has that lived experience as a, as a vital member of the treatment team, all of a sudden the world changes. So uh, again, uh, a little bit from the bottom up and, and uh, from the top down, that marriage. And we were also known, so we had lots of people visit. Two drugs are Sibelius, which is Secretary of State, uh, the, the uh, Assistant Attorney General of Mexico, 17 countries, you know, I could go on and on and on, literally uh, hundreds of different organizations, uh, and maybe more than that over, over that period of time. And they were always impressed with these uh, wraparound pro services, I'll call them, that weren't funded particularly well, if at all. But what they were really impressed with was the community collaboration. How'd you get everybody to work together? You know, so how'd you get law enforcement? How'd you get the law enforcement? How'd you get the consumers? How'd you get the hospital system? So uh, that's the, the real key uh, to this is keeping data, because if, it, if it's, if it's not uh, tracked, it doesn't happen. And most people don't do that, you know, and, and no wonder they don't have good outcomes. You keep data, 
You can see if things work or not, have a continuous quality improvement. If it doesn't work, you can celebrate that because you can do something else. And people are afraid to show their warts. I mean, they're, you know, that things start working. They think it's somehow going to be uh, a bad mark when, when I thought it was a good mark because we could, uh, we, we could uh, change uh, the system. So keeping data, then also having a vision. You know, Yogi Bear said, if you don't know where you're going, you may not get there. And uh, so many times we just throw money at problems with no vision, uh, no tracking, uh, those kinds of things. So uh, I work for the uh, state of Texas. And if you didn't have the data and you couldn't prove the, the cost benefit, then you're just not going any place. So, uh, you know, uh, I learned that right off and, and started developing data when I first got here to San Antonio. Unbelievable, Leon. I'm just uh, blown away by all your stories. Uh, the level of impact that you've made—it's—it's it's really incredible and comes through with each uh, each ounce of of what you've what you're talking about. Uh, in addition, maybe in addition to the ideas you mentioned about data, and in addition to uh, the uh, the tracking, uh, uh, I'm, what I'm also struck by is somehow when you talk about love and hope. Uh, and uh, and and being able to take care of people, you're talking about a very personal connection that really has to be established, so-called at the ground up. How do you ensure that that happens for each person you're interacting with, and how do you scale that up? That's probably maybe the biggest biggest puzzle out of all of this. You're talking about the way in which medicine should be delivered with compassion, with hope. Yet we're struggling with that because none of us have time, and it's unfunded. Maybe there's some isolated examples of a, of a nurse or a physician who figured out how to do it, yet you've been able to do it at a considerable scale. So can you shine some light on, on how you develop programs that really build in this, this quality of compassion and, and uh, hope? Uh, well, uh, two or three things. Uh, one is you have to listen. And uh, that data is uh, going to show you if you're in the right direction. Uh, secondly, uh, you have to include uh, uh, patients, families, consumers, and family members uh, in this discussion and really listen to them. And uh, like if Janet hadn't walked in my office that day, I probably may have come to the realization, but not very quickly without her you know, explaining to me <clears throat> that really what made a difference in her life was uh, the organization that I was associated with. I also find a way to give her hope and, uh, you know, hear, hear her and her, her uh, uh, other uh, uh, patients, consumers, they call themselves prosumers because they, they didn't like the word consumer. They wanted to be active and they actually developed a peer group called the ProSumers that's got national and international recognition. And they get together on a regular basis and help each other uh, get jobs, start businesses, uh, those, those kinds of things uh, to, to the hope. So list, listening to people, make them part of the process, that's difficult to take that kind of criticism. And uh, uh, thirdly, uh, I think, you know, that vision you know, remember that story about stand and deliver, uh, you know, the school teacher that, uh, you know, in California, 
who went back to high school after working in Silicon Valley and wanted to teach computer science and the high school he went to didn't have any computers, right? <laughs> so he couldn't teach computer science. Uh, and uh, so he ended up teaching algebra or, or whatever. And he and, and uh, the other teachers in the, in the uh, teacher's lounge, you know, uh, give this picture of, of the people that lived in, in that area and went to school as being uh, uh, non-caring uh, drug addicts, uh, gangbangers, you know, be careful they're gonna, you know, slash your tires and key your car. And he refused to believe those students were bad, stupid, uh, whatever. Treat them like they were smart, treat them with dignity. And by the time they got out of high school, they were the best in the state of California to the point where they thought they were cheating. Because how could the best and brightest come out of this barrio school that was drug infested? Well, it's that one guy who uh, uh, believed in these kids. And that whole thing about the Bengalian effect, the self-fulfilling prophecy, you've got to convey that uh, to your staff. That you know, uh, even, if, even if you're an aide or a janitor, you've got to treat people like they have worth and like they can you know, do great things. And if, if you treat them like patients, uh, you know, uh, even in the health professional, we still people call, call people chronic in my field. I mean, what, what kind of message does that send to everybody? You know, so uh, developing that uh, Pygmalion effect, that self-fulfilling prophecy that in every one of your staff, that they have a lot of power to change people's lives just by how they treat them and what they expect from them. And so the active ingredient isn't the medicine, it isn't the treatment, it's that belief in, in people and developing that culture of health and healing and hope. You've told me before that it's a little bit challenging to get people on board to really realize that these things that might be seen as fuzzy can actually make tangible, um, you know, both impacts in monetary improvements in improvements in their, you know, the incarceration rates and everything else, medical improvements. And so what would you tell these people who might, you know, want to make changes, the people, the providers and the, you know, other law enforcement and mental health providers and everybody who might want to have these same types of results that you do, but have a hard time believing that the fuzzy things like hope are what really makes the difference in treating these people so that they do have that positive self-fulfilling prophecy? How do you get them to believe that this does work? Yeah, well, you start where they are. And I have this thing uh, that I tell people when they when they used to come and visit before I retire. You know, they would look to see these, uh, you know, these programs and how wonderful they were and all the different money that we were able to bring in and and try to blend, braid, and integrate federal, state, and local dollars and drive out the waste and duplication and keep this data to show that there's cost benefit and a lot of savings, not only saving lives, but also actual dollars. And I would tell people we're, we were an 18-year overnight success. So you don't start at the end, you start at the beginning. And when we first started, we had nothing. I met with the county judge, they were talking about adding a, a thousand beds on the county jail, which we never did because the Texas Jail Standards Commission was threatening to shut them down because of overcrowding and deplorable conditions. 
And so uh, you start where you can, uh, over-promise and under-deliver, because if you make all these grand promises and you don't deliver, then you're going to lose everybody's uh, uh, enthusiasm or respect or whatever. So, uh, you know, start, start slow, keep data, have continuous quality improvement, uh, and uh, uh, then uh, realize that unnatural partners sometimes are your best partners. So we, since we didn't have any money, one of the first things we, we were able to do is start training law enforcement officers in crisis intervention training. And uh, you know, most law enforcement at the time uh, would, would go to the academy. And at the academy, it's like going to boot camp. You learn how to use all your hard skills, your command voice, your command presence, how to use your weapon, how to use a taser, how to use an ASP. But you don't, you're not taught any soft skills. And 85% of your contact with the public, you shouldn't be using those command voice and command presence and those hard skills because it's just going to escalate, you know, the problem because your calls are going to be mental health calls, family disturbance calls, adolescence out of control. And you need to have these other set of tools that are softer. So we taught these law enforcement officers. And in that first class, I heard things like, I'm a cop, <clears throat> I'm a cop. Yeah, I'm not a social worker. I don't believe in these hug a thug programs. And by the end of the 40-hour training, which over 20% of that, I mean, uh, 20 hours of that training was role-playing, where they're taught to recognize the signs and symptoms <clears throat> of mental illness and step back and use these de-escalation de de techniques. Uh, by, the, by the end of the 40-hour course, all these really hard uh, law enforcement officers who didn't believe in, in uh, these programs we're going, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't have these services for. And I told you, and, and at the end of this, we're having HBO do a special about our, our law enforcement officers here, Nightline uh, doing a special. The officers taking a lot of pride in the fact that they can take somebody to treatment and not take them to jail that they've seen over and over and over again. And they become a, a real uh law enforcement officer in the fact they can do good community policing and use the right tool at the right time. So, you know, how you engage people that are non-natural partners that you don't seem to have the same language, uh, <clears throat> have the same philosophy, it's possible, but you've got to start slow and you've got to, you know, have uh, some buy-in from the leadership that they at least try. Thank you so much, Leon. This was so enlightening. It's just so much ground to cover because you've done such amazing work in virtually every realm of mental health. And it's so impressive. So we really appreciate you being here and chatting with us. Well, it's been a great honor and very humbling for me to have the opportunity to have the wonderful life I have. Thank you. Incredibly inspiring. Thank you for sharing that with us, Leon. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. And thank you all for watching. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.